At first, the weather was fine and still. But when it began to get dark in the forest, an unwelcome penetrating wind blew up from the east and everything sank into silence. Needles of ice stretched across the pools and it felt cheerless, remote, and lonely in the forest. There was a whiff of winter. Thus begins The Student, a story written by Anton Chekhov, considered one of the greatest writers of all time, and this story was his favorite of all his short stories. It's the story of Ivan, the student, a seminary student, in fact, who's on his way home on one cold, gloomy evening, and it's Good Friday. On his journey, he talks about how he's hungry and he's thinking about the poverty of his own village and his own home and how this cold air that he's experiencing was the same cold air that others had experienced uh, like him for ages in, in the past. And how, quote, there had been just the same desperate poverty and hunger, the same thatched roofs with holes in them, ignorance, misery, the same des desolation around, the same darkness, the same feeling of oppression. All these had existed, did exist, and would exist. And the lapse of a thousand years would make life no better, and he did not want to go home. Pretty bleak. And pretty Anton Chekhov, if you know <laughs> his writings. <laughs> But the story continues and eventually ends on a very different note that is quite exceptional for Anton Chekhov, especially being his favorite story. On his way home, he stops at a fire and he meets two women who are widows. And he starts to tell them about Good Friday from the Gospels and how at another fire in the courtyard of the high priest, Peter denies Jesus three times, and how Jesus talked about this back in the garden, and how Jesus goes on to suffer, and how Peter starts to weep, and then the women at the fire with Ivan become very moved, and one of them starts to weep and sob. Ivan eventually leaves the fire and the women, and as he's on his journey, he starts to think about and reflect upon what just happened, how this story of Jesus touched these women, how it moved them, and how connected these two scenes, separated by centuries, had become. Quote, his heart suddenly thrilled with joy. He even stopped for a minute to catch his breath. The past, he thought, is linked to the present by an unbroken chain of events, each flowing from another. And it seemed to him he had just witnessed both ends of this chain. And when he touched one end, the other started shaking. After crossing the river by the ferry and climbing the hill, he looked at his native village towards the west, where a narrow strip of crimson sunset was glimmering. And he reflected how truth and beauty, which had guided human life there in the garden and in the yard of the high priest's palace, had continued unbroken to the present, were the most important parts of the life of humanity and of the whole of earthly life. 
a feeling of youthfulness, health, vigor, and an inexpressible sweet expectation of happiness, of a mysterious unfamiliar happiness, took possession of him, and life seemed entrancing, wonderful, and endowed with sublime meaning. And that's how the story ends. <laughs> so I have a real tendency to give away the ending of, of my stories and illustrations. Natasha always talks to me about this. But it's still, uh, it's still worth reading this story and going back and watching the movies. Um, but it was Good Friday for Ivan Illich. But Easter Sunday was coming. And Ivan could feel it. In many ways, this story mirrors the story of the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24, which Steve Machia gave a powerful sermon on last week, which started out with two followers of Jesus, two disciples, two students of Jesus who are also heading home, who are also heading home, though, with desolation, darkness, and the feeling of oppression. Their Messiah, their teacher, had been crucified by the Romans and had died and was dead just like every human being before him. And with him, all their hopes had died as well. But then, of course, like the story of Ivan, comes a turn in the story, the end of Holy Week, the revelation when Jesus himself makes himself known to them in the breaking of bread in the scriptures, as someone who, unlike everyone else, had come back from the dead and conquered death itself. No wonder their hearts burned within them. <laughs> Not with heartburn, as uh, Steve pointed out, but with more vigor than Ivan, more unfamiliar joy taking possession of them, more everything making more entrancing and wonderful and full of sublime meaning. Because that's what happens when the risen Jesus appears to us. That's what happens when Holy Spirit opens the eyes of our heart, right, to him, for us to know him. That's what happens when Holy Spirit links the story of the crucified and risen Jesus to our story, when he links the good shepherd to the sheep. Our life with God takes us in and out of different seasons, right? Which for the most part, like the church calendar, are out of our control. We play a little part sometimes, but mostly those are out of our control. So there are seasons of absence, of an isolation and desolation we go through. There are seasons of connection and revelation and consolation that we go through. And Lent trains us and addresses those of the latter season, and Eastertide addresses and trains us for the, for, for the, uh, the consolation ones. So that when in Eastertide we come to a passage like the one in our gospel reading about Jesus as the good shepherd, we're trained, we, we learn to come like Ivan as hungry students. We're hungry for that connection of the good, with the Good Shepherd, to know him again, not just as some distant figure in a book in the past, but personally in the present, 
to know his guiding voice, to know his provision, to know him not just as a guide, but the guide and leader of our life. To know, to know him, to know him in his most sublime and ultimate act of shepherding, when he lays his life down for the sheep, for his friends on the cross, and then leads them into resurrection life, in his resurrection. To know that in the present, so that when we touch one end, the other starts shaking. Shaking at the goodness of it all. At the goodness of the Lord, our shepherd. Our gospel passage, John chapter 10, has two of the great I am statements in the gospel of John. The first one, verse 7, says, Jesus says, I am the gate of the sheep. And the second one, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. That's the one we're mostly focusing on this morning. It's the fourth, in fact, statement, I am statement of the seven, putting it in the chiastic middle of all the I am statements. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And the meaning in the Greek is that he dies for the benefit of his sheep. And normally that wouldn't be a good thing. (laughs) Sheep. A dead shepherd doesn't go very well for sheep in protecting them and caring for them. But of course, this is a different kind of shepherd, and this is a different kind of death, and his death death actually delivers us from our ultimate enemies of sin and death. And his death becomes the door to eternal life, of course, to the broad pastures of God of Psalm 23, where we're led to the pastures of Holy Spirit and his living waters. We're led through the dark valley in the presence of our enemies to a table where we receive the word of the Lord and the Lord himself, and we're led all the way to the dwelling place of God. Because our shepherd did not stay dead. He took his life back up again and shepherds us now as the risen one into resurrection life, into all this resurrection life. Oh, to know him. One of the oldest and most common images of Jesus in early Christian art is in fact not of Jesus dying on the cross. It's of Jesus as the good shepherd with a sheep around his shoulders. If you have the the image on your bulletin, that's from one of the catacombs, the early catacombs in the third century. You see this kind of picture all the time. And, And actually, this image predates Christianity in ancient Greece and on into Rome. The image of a shepherd with a sheep on his shoulders was common, and it depicted the coming sacrifice of that sheep to the gods. But with Christianity, of course, that image is adapted and changed, which you see all through the scriptures. Always pay attention to how God changes, makes new the culture and the symbols and the practices of our day. And that's what the people of God should always be doing. So with Christianity, the image of the sheep, of course, no longer represents the one who's going to be sacrificed, but it represents the person whom Jesus sought and found and put on his shoulders to bring home. 
Just before our gospel passage, actually, in John chapter 9, we see Jesus doing this very thing, illustrating what he's going to talk about in John chapter 10. So after Jesus heals this blind man, which is what good shepherds do, they, they have to constantly heal their sheep. The Pharisees in the story question the man and his parents about the healing. And when the man says Jesus had done this, they reject his testimony and cast him out of the synagogue. That would have been a terrible thing. He's being cast out of the community. He's going to be isolated. And by discrediting Jesus, they had potentially even separated him from the source of light and life that John has been talking about in relation to Jesus. They've separated potentially the sheep from the good shepherd. But Jesus, in contrast to these false shepherds, is the good shepherd who protects his sheep from predators and neglect, who feeds them, who heals them, who calls them by name and goes out and finds them when they get lost or excluded. It says, when Jesus heard that they had driven out the man, he went and found the man. It says, when Jesus heard they had driven the man out, he went and found the men, because that is what a good shepherd does. When his sheep get cast out, when they wander, when they lose their way and get lost, he goes and finds them and puts them on his shoulders and brings them home. He did that for me when I first came to faith. He's been doing that for me many, many times ever since, and I'm counting on him doing that until the day I die, until in that day I die, he comes and finds me in death and raises me from the dead. That's the good shepherd we can count on all our days. Back in the story, when Jesus, we, we're told he finds the man, it says he revealed himself to the man as the son of man. And the man's heart must have burned within him because it says when Jesus revealed himself to the man, the man then worshiped Jesus. Oh, to know the good shepherd and to be found by him. Oh, to know his guiding voice. Oh, to know his provision. Oh, to know him as the guide and leader and savior of our lives. Oh, to know him as the one who lays down his life and takes it back up again. When he, we know him in that way, we want to worship him and sing about him. I pray this a lot for people, especially when they're in transition, that they would know the good shepherd in all the ways he's described in Psalm 23 and all the ways he's described in John 10 that they would know him, not just on the page, but in their life as one who is with them. Oh, to know him and to make him known. A week ago yesterday at the men's retreat, we had heard a powerful, inspiring word uh, talk from Craig Parker, who's been working with the Navigators from 1980, I think, with his wife. And it's been said that the navigators are like the, the Marines of parachurch ministry. <laughs> and after meeting Craig and a number of other navigators, I would say, yeah, they are definitely the Marines. They're very dedicated, disciplined people whom we have a lot to learn from. 
And the navigators, they have this motto that summarizes uh, their purpose as the navigators, but really summarizes the purpose of Christians, of humans. And it's this, to know Christ and to make him known and to help others do the same. To know Christ and to make him known and to help others do the same. It's a very marine-like motto, <laughs> but it's one that has stuck with me through the years and I found very helpful just clarifying my greatest purpose in life. We start to, by coming to know the Good Shepherd for ourselves, to know his provision and protection, his guiding voice, all the ways he is a Good Shepherd to us. But as his witnesses, we should also be making him known in our words and with the way we live our lives. So as we come to know the Good Shepherd, that should, be, should lead to us becoming like him in our ways. And so that when we live with people and we're with people, we are expressing his caring, protecting, guiding, self-giving way. So people are giving it, getting an example, a taste of the Good Shepherd. We never do that perfectly, but we can and we should be doing that substantially in our lives. I think neighborhood group leaders do this. I know they do. I see it and I hear about it, how they bear witness in their lives, how they care for people, not just with their words, but in how they provide a space for people to come into their homes and give, facilitate food and give them nourishment with food, but also with the word of God and with fellowship and how they facilitate prayer and practical help for each other. They bear witness in their lives to the Good Shepherd in a beautiful way. And God has gifted and called each of us differently and we, we do want to imitate and express the life of Jesus in all its diversity and variety as much as we can. But each of us has a main way or main ways we do that in the church and in the world, and in our vocations. So for example, those of us who teach can know and make known the teacher in how we teach and how we talk about our teaching. Those of us who, who pastor or lead can know and make Jesus known as the Good Shepherd in the way we pastor and lead and the way we talk about our pastoring. I am just an under-shepherd. <laughs> Jesus is the true good shepherd of all of us. Those whose professions are giving to healing the human body or the mind, they can know and make Jesus known as the healer in how they do their professions and how they talk about it with people. Those who build can know and make Jesus known as the builder of the church whom the gates of hell cannot prevail against, who's building a kingdom that cannot be shaken, who's making all things new. Builders can bear witness to that, to a degree. Can't go that far. It's a, it's a hard act to follow, but we can bear witness to it to some degree. There are many ways we can do this in our lives and make him known in the church. So this time tomorrow that we're going to be starting we're gonna be doing on a more regular basis. That's a way, an opportunity for people to talk about how they're doing this in their work, in their vocation. And which is also a way for us, that helps us to think further in new and fresh and creative ways, how we can do this in our work, in our professions and vocations. Which brings us to the final 
phrase of the navigator model to know Christ and to make him known and help others do the same. This is usually a, a, a step of maturity in us. This is when we've been a Christian for a time. Now it's time to start helping others do what we've been learning to do in our Christian life with Christ. So this is what different Christian fellowships and organizations and associations are about that people join or smaller ones that form in a church sometimes where we get together and we help each other learn how to do this, how to make Christ known in our vocations, in both our words, but in how we do our vocations. And this is an important thing, not just for our own formation, but for the formation of others. And some of us here might think about how we could start one of those here in our midst, which I know people have done. When Ryan starts uh, as assistant pastor at the end of the summer, we're going to start to form and train and equip a shepherding team so that uh, it's a group of, going to be a group of ordained and non-ordained people to grow in the practice and the art of shepherding. And so that, for one, shepherding isn't limited just to me or to Ryan in, uh, in Church of the Cross, but that a bunch of people can be shepherding people's hearts and, and showing people how to go to the living waters of the Holy Spirit, how to come to the table to receive the word and the presence of Christ and to find the dwelling place of God in their lives. I'm also going to start to form a, a preaching team of clergy and ordinance to, to share the pulpit like I've been doing, uh, which will free me up to meet with more people. There's always people I can't meet with and I want to, uh, and other things I want to do. But it's also going to give a variety of voices, which is awesome because we have so many amazing preachers in our midst that we can hear from and learn from. But we're also going to gather to sharpen each other's preaching skills so we can get better at giving the word to the people of God. We have a high bar here already for preaching, but we're going to raise it even higher <laughs> because the sheep of the good shepherd should be fed good food. Whatever our vocations are, our giftings, we should be practicing them and talking about them in a way that encourages others to do that, even if it's not going to be their main way of modeling Jesus, their main vocation or their main work. So, for example, somebody who has the gift of generosity, they shouldn't be the only ones giving <laughs> in our midst. But rather, they should inspire the rest of us to give more and to be more generous like Jesus. So that we all, to some degree, come to know our generous teacher, the good shepherd, and to make him known with our words, but in our giving and in our shepherding and with whatever gifts the Holy Spirit has given us and with all of the fruit that the Holy Spirit gives us. And as we help each other to do the same, because that's our greatest purpose, because these are the most important parts of the life of humanity and of all of life on the earth. May it be so. Amen.